Well, there's a story of a pastor who was doing a series on prayer, and during that series, he received a note from one of his, the members of his congregation. It was an incredibly honest take on God and prayer, and this member says this. It says, Dear Pastor, I'm perplexed. I've been praying for a long time for something that I'm confident is according to God's will, but I'm not getting it. Been there? I've been a member of the Presbyterian Church, this church, for 30 years, and I've tried to be a consistent one for all that time. I've been the superintendent of the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God does not answer my prayer. I'm perplexed. You ever been there? Well, you know that Maybe that's not the right answer, that your years of service as a Christian to God and His church, that God is not obligated or in debt to you to answer your prayer or do the things that you want Him to do, and yet you, in your mind at least, maybe not on paper like this guy, but you wonder, what about my faithfulness? Where's my reward? Why is life so hard? You ever been there? And maybe it's not outward, maybe you never verbalize it, but in your heart, you say things like, God, you've called me to A, B, and C, and I've done A, B, and C, and I've been obedient to you, and I've done it for a long time, so why is life so hard? Why can't there be more blessing to my obedience and my labor for you? And oh, by the way, I've been more faithful to the guy sitting next to me at church for all these years, and it seems like you bless them more than, that you, than you bless me. You ever been there where you think God should reward you for your faithfulness, and you look to God and say those words? It's not fair. We come to a text this morning, this last parable that we'll be in. And right before the parable that Jesus teaches to his disciples, coming to the end of Jesus' ministry, it's right before he comes to Jerusalem to be delivered up and crucified. And so Jesus has been talking about how he's going away and he's going to die on a cross. And the disciples come to some conclusions. They're like, look, we've been following you, Jesus, for about almost three years. And so they begin to ask questions about what's in it for them. Where's my reward? And Jesus tells them, gives them a beautiful answer and says, there is reward for your faithfulness. You've left everything and followed me. Your family, your friends, you've been persecuted. There will be heavenly reward for you. But Jesus sensed something else. He sensed not only did they care about heavenly reward and what was in it for them, but there was also this comparative look at service. And you see it in the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And they come to Jesus, and like any mother would probably, why can't my sons, can they sit on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom? And what do, what do the disciples do? They grumble and complain. They're mad because they're comparing their service. And so Jesus tells these disciples a parable, sensing that it's not just about reward for labor, which can be right and good before God, but it's also about looking to their left and their right and saying, I'm going to get more than them, right? 
Surely, because I've followed Jesus closer than all these other people have and longer than all these other people have, I'm going to get more reward than them. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. And we'll be in verses 1 through 16. It's page 825. If you need a Bible, it's close to you. It's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. That's usually what's on the title. But it's really about the owner of the vineyard, as we will see, Matthew 21 through 16. And I think what Jesus is doing here primarily is giving us the motivation, the right motivation for serving in his kingdom. A motivation that looks different than serving in the kingdom of the world and the way the world works. What's the motivation of serving the king? Is it for comparative rewards with those sitting on your left and on your right? So the question may be to ask yourself this morning as we begin is, why do you serve? Some of you have been setting up these white, hard chairs for like 10 years. Or working on AV where you just get these funny looks when the, when the sound doesn't go right. Or serving in kids where you're going, is any of this coming through to this four-year-old? Or you're setting up here and serving Jesus and his church. What's the motivation? Is it just comparison with the people in my church or the people in the kingdom? Or is it more? Why do you serve him? Why do you do the things you... Is it just for a rabbit foot? You know, like if I do this, then God's going to bless me. And I think Jesus pushes deeply into the answer to that question. And he does it by reminding us of the owner of the vineyard, God. And who he is. Because that will give us the right source of motivation to serve him for the right reasons. Look at it with me. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus says this. I gave you the context. The disciples are saying, what will we have? What will we get? And Jesus says this. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master or a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in the vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. And going out about the third hour, that's 9 o'clock a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went, going out again about the sixth hour, 12 o'clock, And then the ninth hour, he comes back, 3 p.m., and he did the same. And about the 11th hour, 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing, waiting for work. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go too into the vineyard. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages for the day beginning with the last up to the first. And when these hired, about the 11th hour, they worked one hour, came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received one denarius. And on receiving, if they grumbled at the master of the house continuously, saying, these last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But the master replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? 
take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so that the last will be first and the first will be last? Can I tell you what this parable is not about? This parable is not about the workforce and labor and minimum wage and unions. It's not about earthly things like that. It's not about working hard or hardly working. There's other passages and proverbs of Scripture that call us to work the way God calls us to work excellently. It's not about either one of those things. What this parable is about is how grace works. How grace works not only in entering the kingdom and salvation, but how grace works in the kingdom of God who rules and reigns in the kingdom by his grace. That is the primary, I think, pursuit of Jesus in this text with his disciple. And so we will look at that. Your first thought this morning is this. And we're going to see it with the guys who worked effectively 12 hours. The guys who worked and labored all day, the first point is this, in God's kingdom, no one gets shortchanged by God. He is just. Nobody gets shortchanged by God. God is just. I've got to give you a little background like all these parables to help you understand an owner in a vineyard and how the day worked. So, first of all, I think what you have here is an owner of a vineyard. The people of Israel would see this in this parable as that owner being God. He was the owner of the vineyard. This is in the Old Testament. God, you see God as the owner of the vineyard. You see it in the New Testament too. The Jesus the vine, we are the branches. And so the picture that you're seeing is God as an owner of the vineyard of the kingdom. And you see disciples who have been serving a long time and disciples have just been serving a little while. That's what I think the implication is. But in the culture, what you see is there's really, really in Israel, you know, the landscape of Israelite, there's kind of two types of land. There are the plains where people farm crops and grow crops and feed and care for animals, and then there are the hills. And what they did with the hills was grow vineyards on the hills, hard, hard labor, carrying soil up the hill, carrying big rocks so the soil would stay. And so when you see in this parable, you say, man, it's hard labor in the sweat of the day. Working a vineyard was difficult work in the first century. It was hard work. And what had come in this parable? It was time for harvest. It was time. And interestingly enough, if you've ever been to Sedona or if you've ever been to a vineyard, what you know is you can really mess up the grapes pretty quick if you pull them too early or wait too late. So when the harvest comes, you've got to get it at the right time. Growing up on a ranch, we baled hay in the summer. And it was similar to that in a kind of agrarian community. And so I remember my dad with hay. He would wait for the right time. But once it was time to bale the hay, and I was a little kid, it was time. And what my dad did is he would rent the combine, and I would watch him through the second story window of our house, way down at the pasture, 800 yards away, and I would see the lights at night of him bailing the hay because it had to come at the right time. 
And I also watched him take, he was a high school teacher, and he would take 10, 12 high school students and pay them to come bail, the, to come take the hay and throw it in the tractor or throw it in the, in the trailer and then put it in the barns quickly to cover it. And he would pay them a day's wage, like a high school kid wage. And this is what's happening. The owner of the vineyard all day long is going back to the marketplace and he's getting day laborers, not full-time help. He doesn't need full-time help. He needs day laborers. Do you see it there? And he goes at 6 a.m. and he gets some guys. He chooses people. You ever seen this? If you're in construction, you know how this works. There's day laborers and you select the ones that you want as the owner. And he selects some at 6 a.m. He comes back at 9 a.m. He comes back at 12. He comes back at 3. He comes back right before the end of the day at 5 for day labor. And look at what it says. It said that he paid these day laborers, not full-time people like soldiers or servants in a home. He paid them one denarius. And here's what you need to know. One denarius was the pay for full-time workers, for people with an ongoing secure job who had a better job. Day laborers did not make usually a denarius. So here's the point. For the guys who worked all day, it was a generous wage. He chose them. It was a generous wage. And they came and worked all day, some of them. And here, what's the problem though? All day they're working and they're thinking what? They've agreed to a denarius, which is a generous amount of money for one day. And they come to the end of the day, and the foreman comes, and he pays them all out, and all these other guys see it. And he pays the guy who works one hour, not 12, a denarius. That's extravagant. It's like almost two weeks' pay for an hour. So what are you thinking if you've worked all day? That's not fair, right? That's exactly, I'm going to assume in those moments where they see the guy, they work one hour, get paid, a denarius are like, let me do some simple math. Twelve. I'm getting twelve denarius today. Or the guy who they hired at nine o'clock, I'm getting nine, I'm getting six, I'm going to get paid. This guy's crazy generous. And then they get paid what? Twelve hours. They get paid one. Just like the guy's been here for one hour. Are you upset? Here's the question though. What did you agree to? If you're the 12-hour day guy, you agreed to one denarius. The owner, it's his money, he paid everyone one denarius, and so now they're frustrated. And what does the text say? It says that they grumbled, and it's a continuous action that they grumbled and complained. What they saw at the beginning of the day and all through the day to them would have been generous until they saw somebody else get paid a denarius who worked less. Do we ever see that in our world? Our response? Our response to really what was just. Was the owner just to the person who worked all day? He was. It was the wage that they agreed to. But when we begin to compare hours worked, we, get, we, we forget about the generosity of the owner toward us, don't we? It's no longer generous, it's unfair. We see this in our world, don't we? I mean, Justin Hebert, quarterback for the, are they San, they're not San Diego anymore. 
Los Angeles Chargers, he just got like five years, 256 million for five years, like guaranteed. What do you think the agent for Patrick Mahomes is doing the second that contract dropped? What do you think Kyler, what's his name? Murray. What do you think his agent's doing the moment that contract drops? What are they doing? Renegotiating a contract that's already in place. This is the way our world works, right? What happens in your work when someone who is your equal, if you will, you find out they're getting paid more than you? How you feeling about that? You were content until that moment, right? Kids, how about at Christmas? When you're comparing, you're opening your gifts, what are you doing? You're looking at the other kids in your household going, did I get as much as them? And if you feel slighted, what was great and what you asked for is no longer good enough. Because that's the way our hearts often works. Because remember, what, what's Jesus' point here? To his disciples, his point is, remember, these disciples have been saying, what's in it for me and am I going to get more than the next guy? And he's saying, I'm just, and I'm generous to you. Don't complain about what I give to someone else. So here's my question. This is hard, right? Are we content serving Jesus for the joy that it brings us, for the glory that it brings him or are there strings attached when push comes to shove? When we don't get a position or we don't get what somebody else receives, how does that land on you? See, we tend to compare what God gives to others. And the moment we compare what God has given to others, we cease to be able to appreciate the generosity of God toward us right? Can I say this? The only person in this parable who got treated unjustly and unfairly was who? It was the owner. It was the owner of the vineyard because these laborers were grumbling and complaining to one another and to him and slandering him because he was just how often do we do that to God? Where we look around and say, why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you rewarding me in this way? And we begin to say those words. God, it's not fair. And God would say to us, friends, have I not treated you generously and justly? Comparison kills is Jesus' message to his disciples. See, God's not unfair to you. He's not unfair to me. And here's the point. If you really want to talk about fairness, you don't want fairness. I don't want fairness from God. Fairness from God leaves us all in the marketplace, in our sins. That's what we actually deserve. But man, some of us, especially if we have a high sense of justice, you know you in the room, right? You're still saying, and I'm still saying this a little bit, but he could have in this parable. He could have given them 12 times. He could have given them more if he would have chose to. Anybody thinking that? And you would be right. He could have. 
He absolutely, the owner of the vineyard could have given more. But here's the deal. I'm not the owner. You're not the owner. It's not mine to give. It's his. And we don't like that about God sometimes. We look at other people and go, why not me? There's an important truth that comes next in this parable. Not only is God just, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. See, in God's kingdom, it's God who dispenses his own lavish grace on whom he chooses. You see it in the parable? He's the owner. He's the owner of the vineyard. He can dispense his grace however he chooses. He is sovereign. Notice he picked the laborers. There were other guys that looked like all day waiting for work. There were people there that didn't get chosen. He chose them. And then he was generous to the guys who worked all day that were complaining about not getting paid more. He was generous to them. He was generous not only to them but to the other workers. He was just and he was generous. And you look at the guys that came in the 11th hour Notice these guys were willing to work all day, and he pays them first. So the problem with this full-day guy is that God is choosing, the owner of the vineyard is choosing to disperse his resources to them. I'm going to get to why I think it a little bit. I think there's a good answer to that. But they work less. And maybe this makes you a little bit uncomfortable. God's sovereign grace being dispensed by him, the owner, but you see it all the way through the Bible. You cannot miss this deal. I mean, just take the book of Genesis. <laughs> you get to Abraham, an idol worshiper, y'all. He had lots of gods. He had little idols in his house. His wife later had, still had these little idols in his house. Not a good dude, not a worshiper of Yahweh. And what does God do? He comes to him and says, follow me, Abram. Why? Does God come to him because he's got it all together and yeah, he's a seeker. Like I can just tell. No, he doesn't have anything together. He worshiped false gods and God comes to him. Yahweh comes to him and says, follow me. I'll give you land, seed, and blessing. And the Bible says that he believed and he trusted and it was credited to righteousness for him. Dude wasn't good. Jacob and Esau. Jacob's very name. Sorry if you got the name Jacob. What's your mom's wrong? Mom and dad. James is a good name. Means deceiver, heel grabber. He's grabbing his brother's heel from birth. And he's messing with his brother, just like in his life. And you look at their life and you go, Esau was better. And yet God chose Jacob. What's up with that? If you just take a look at the disciples themselves, there's a guy in the 12 who was trustworthy, who ever, nobody suspected is the one who is not of them. If you're the money carrier, that means people trust you. Nobody looked at Judas and said, he's the guy. And yet he was. Uh oh. And then you compare that to the disciples and all their labor and work. And then Jesus gets on a cross and he's got a guy on one side of him. And he says, you will be with me in paradise. And his whole life was that of a criminal. And yet he believed right before death. And Jesus says, you're with me. He's sovereign. 
Romans chapter 9, the sovereignty of God. God's, God's word says this in Romans 9. What we, shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the 12-day labor in the passage, right? Where's the justice? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, disciples, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Naturally, I think, we subscribe to what I would call a fairness doctrine. In our hearts, it's just there, that everything's got to be fair, parsed out. God doesn't subscribe to our earthbound fairness doctrine. Here's why. In his kingdom, here's why. This is beautiful. Because he is way more generous. He is way more merciful. He is way more gracious than you and I would ever be in his shoes. Amen? Way more generous. Way more merciful. He doesn't look at the external. He sovereignly chooses to dispense his grace on people like you and me who are undeserving, who come at the 11th hour. You ever, you ever been given something or paid something that you didn't deserve? Like, you hadn't earned it. You clocked in your hours and you were paid like 20 hours, but you got paid like 40. Your boss was being generous. How did that feel? What did you think? What did you say? We're not told in this parable, but think about how those guys in 11th hour likely felt about the owner of the vineyard, that he was gracious, that he was merciful. See, in God's kingdom, God dispenses his grace as he chooses, and he is sovereign. And look, that's the beauty of the gospel, that he saves us not on the basis of our works done in righteousness, that he saves us not on what we bring to the table, because we don't bring anything to the table in our sins. What's just for us is that we're separated from God, and yet he comes in at the 11th hour and pulls us out on the basis of his mercy and his grace that he's shown us through his son who was perfect and didn't deserve what he got. And Jesus took the justice of God upon himself for you and for me. That's mercy. That's grace. Undeserved. So God is sovereign. He has every right to dispense his grace as he chooses. He doesn't answer to us. We have no claim on that, but there's one more thing in this passage, and it's beautiful, and we really need it as we understand who God is. Not only is God just, and not only is God sovereign, but in his kingdom, he's generous and compassionate to all his own. He is generous and compassionate to all that are his own. And you have to see this in the text, both with the laborers who labored hard because God chose them. He didn't have to. The owner chose them, and he gave them a generous wage, one denarius, generous. And then you come to the end of the day. Do you see it in the text there? End of the day, 11th hour. And you see that these guys had been waiting all day. If you're a day laborer and you don't get work that day, you may not have food to provide for your family that night. You don't have anything to bring home. I think 
the owner of the vineyard, it was less about the less than an hour work they did and produced for him on the vineyard and more that the owner showed compassion for the day laborer to care for his needs. And isn't that true in the body of Christ? Isn't that true about God? That he cares more about people than he does even about their production for him. Some of you need to sit in that because you're doers like me. I think that God's really pleased with me because I do, I do, I do. And so I translate that to other people and go, well, they're not pulling their weight. See, I think the owner of the vineyard, God, cares more about people than he does about all the production. These guys didn't give hardly any work to the owner of the vineyard that day. And yet he was gracious to them. How about us? Staff, eldership, leaders, how does that translate to our leadership of people in this church? Do we care more about the work getting done than we do about caring for people and shepherding people? And as a body of believers, do we get so wound up in the doing that we forget about the people and caring and shepherding the people around us in the name of Jesus? Important stuff. Here's the thing. The hardest part about this is that God chooses to dispense blessing, gifts, resources. He doesn't often do that equally. He does that different for everyone, so it makes it hard for us to interpret when we look at somebody else and their pocketbook. It makes it hard when we go, well, that person's been given this incredible gift to serve the church, but not me. We have to trust that he does love us and care for us and is generous to us and is compassionate to us all as his children, if you know him. But the dispersion of all of those things looks different for his glory and our good, whether we can make sense of that or not. Because sometimes in the church, we look at some kinds of, for example, gifts and abilities and say, well, I didn't get all that. And I would say to you, you got something else. You got this that I don't have, that the person over here doesn't have. To serve Christ and his kingdom for his glory. So God gives generously and compassionately to all his children. It doesn't really work very well, that idea, in the culture that we live in, does it? We live in a culture that is highly defined as it relates to equity, not equality, equity, right? Self-defined equity. If I feel like someone is getting more than me, then that is wrong. I mean, whether it's, I mean, ground level, we're, we're at a crazy level at this point. Body parts, words, equity is redefined in our culture. And God cares about equality and equity as he defines it. But sameness, you can't find that in the Bible. God sovereignly chooses to dispense his grace, and he gives generously. But the moment we start comparing to one another, we've lost it. We forget the moment we compare to other people. We forget and we redefine injustice. We redefine injustice. Generosity. We're blinded 
by comparison. We don't see, we forget to see, we fail, we can't see the ways in which God has been generous to us. God is good, he's sovereign, he is just. R.C. Sproul talks about justice in this way, and I love it. I love the picture of it. And I think it's incredibly pertinent in the world we live in, but particularly to this parable. He said, what we often do with justice, it's like justice is inside this circle we make. There's a circle of justice, and inside it, there are just things. But the, the problem is, is that everything outside of justice, we define as injustice. And he says, the problem with that is there are things that are non-justice, things that we desperately need, and that we should des- both need and want, like grace like mercy, like love, like compassion, like generosity. Let me illustrate that for a minute. Let's say, imagine yourself being a kid in your home again, all of us, and dad has cooked some steaks. He's grilled some steaks, like Robert Panter good steaks. You ever had Robert Panter steaks? It's really good. Where's Robert? He's back here. And you're a kid, and, you, and there's like four of you in the family, Okay? And what are you doing, especially the boys? You're going out to the grill, and what are you doing when dad's grilling? I want that one. That one's mine. I'm bigger than you. I get the big one. Right? Dad, father, brings in the steaks, and he dispenses the steaks as he wishes on the plate. All the plates. And maybe at the dinner table... It's spoken or unspoken. Somebody got gypped, right? I didn't get enough. And maybe there's grumbling and complaining. I mean, don't grill steaks often. This is a treat. This is generous. This is expensive. But you feel like you've been gypped. This is not fair. And you're done. And what you don't know is dad had some other steaks. He had some other steaks on the grill. And he brings them in and he puts more steak, William, on your plate. And you feel bad. And he puts more steak on different plates. Listen, Cajun people have a word for that. Usually it's around food. If you're Cajun, you know the word, lanyap. It's a little something more, a little something extra for free. This is the owner of the vineyard. The owner of the vineyard is just, but he's also generous. He gives something more. He gives his grace. Listen, you don't want fair. You don't want fair from God. You need something more. You need his grace and his mercy and his generosity that he freely gives. That's what you need. And listen, we need a shot sometimes of what the disciples needed from Jesus in this text. We need to be reminded as we look at how God has graciously given gifts and resources to people that we need to be content what he's put with what he's put on our plate. Because your point and your takeaway today is this. Serve him knowing that he is both just and generous. Let me pray.